coming up in this episode. ISIS's so-called caliphate is crumbling in Iraq and Syria, and many are questioning what will happen the day after it collapses. I don't think there will be a single day after moment when we think when we think about our war against ISIS. Mick Rasmussen is director of the National Counterterrorism Center. We've made tremendous progress in our effort to shrink the size of the caliphate, to squeeze ISIS leadership into smaller and smaller spaces, to put more pressure on them and to make it more difficult for ISIS leadership to organize um, attacks in, in various locations around the world. That's, that's the good news, and it's undeniably good news. On the, the companion piece to that, though, is, of course, that the ideology that, that ISIS has spawned and has advanced um, has already is already, in a sense, the, a genie that is out of the bottle. A compelling conversation about the fight against ISIS and other terror groups, the tactics they use today, the technology they use, the bombs, and the capabilities that they have, and what the U.S. will do in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. If the momentum of the U.S.-led coalition is any indicator, the black flag of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIS may be completely eradicated from Syria and Iraq in a matter of months. But the head of the National Counterterrorism Center warns that the black cloud of ISIS terrorism will not dissipate the day after it falls. We spoke with Nick Rasmussen about that and many other counterterrorism issues for this week's episode of Target USA. So let's get to it. You're charged with some very heavy stuff when it comes to counterterrorism here in the U.S. And one of the really interesting developments is the fact that there are so many developments. So let me just ask off the bat, what do you think is the most significant terror threat the U.S. is facing right now? I think if the, if I were to wake up one day and, and find out that a, a terrorist attack or a terrorist incident had happened here in the United States, my first instinct would be that it was probably most likely carried out by someone who was a what we call a homegrown violent extremist, not someone who is necessarily a member of a terrorist organization deployed from overseas or sent here to, to infiltrate the United States, but rather someone who may have lived here their entire life, may have been born here, but certainly um, has been part of life here in America, but who over time became exposed to extremist material and became radicalized and then looked to carry out an act of terror. It's that kind of individual who we are, I would, I would argue, um, seeing far more frequently here in the United States. Now, the tactics of these homegrown violent extremists are evolving just like their skill levels have over the years. And what we're seeing a lot of, and we have in recent years, has been vehicles. And um, as one particular 
official, I think it was uh, one of the British officials saying that they've turned ordinary, everyday tools into weapons. But I want to ask you about your thoughts on vehicles and your concerns about that tactic being used here. Sure. Uh, Over time, one of the concerns we've seen um, in addressing the threat posed by homegrown violent extremists or individuals acting uh, as, as terrorists is that they will often use whatever tools or capabilities are easily within their grasp uh, when carrying out an attack, whether that's a knife or a gun or increasingly uh, a motor vehicle. Um, some of that comes from, from initiative on their own part, but some of that comes up uh, from instruction and guidance they have received from terrorist organizations overseas like ISIS. Uh, as it became more difficult for for um, extremist individuals to travel to Iraq, places like Iraq and Syria to join the fight, the instructions instead became do what you can to strike out uh, in your own environment and use whatever tools you have at your disposal. And so an individual could, um, on their own, mount an attack using literally only what what he he or she had within reach, and a vehicle certainly falls in that category. Our challenge now is to help state and local governments and other police organizations figure out what are the best tactics to use to try to prevent those kinds of attacks from from proving lethal. Uh, And and I would argue that that's a big challenge right now. Um, We want to preserve the way we we live uh, freely here in the United States. We don't want to change the way we do business. You ought to be able to go to a Fourth of July parade, a... uh, a concert in an outdoor setting or uh, or any kind of public gathering, you ought to be able to do that without fear of potentially um, suffering uh, at the hands of a terrorist. And yet in the modern era, you have to at least ask that question in many cases uh, of what kind of vulnerability do we have. So vehicles in this country, I mean, there are so many vehicles and so many different types of vehicles and so much road and so much space where that can be applied and used, I imagine you have to work really hard to sort of figure out what to, what to recommend to the state and locals. Give us a sense of how difficult that process is. I, I would argue, I would, what I would say is that our focus is mainly on trying to, to provide advice on safety and security of public gatherings, because as you suggest, you know, making the road, the highways and the byways safe all across the United States, that's a big enough challenge even without introducing a terrorism ele- element to it. Just uh, the issues of traffic and road safety, obviously, are something we've been dealing with as a society for many years. But our goal is to make sure that state and local law enforcement authorities understand um, and can prepare for the potential threat posed by an individual who might use a vehicle to try to uh, target um, vulnerable a vulnerable population in, in in a public in a public gathering like the like the like I mentioned a moment ago, whether that's a a, a parade, a concert, uh, a high school football game, uh, you know, literally any public gathering. A lone wolf or a lone actor, as you've you've said on numerous occasions, can pop up anywhere. One of the most recent attempts or situations that we can think of is the situation in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Is there anything specific that came out of that that you can can point to? That 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 helps you f- figure out um, this threat right now and determine how to move forward in terms of your attempts to prevent this kind of thing or learn about it at least. I mean, I, with, I'll be a little bit careful in what I say about the Flint, Michigan attack because again, it just happened within just the last few days, and 
who are certainly following the, the lead of, of the local law enforcement authorities and the FBI in trying to understand what exactly went into that attack. But I will say that it does bear many of the hallmarks of what I've been talking about uh, in the course of our discussion. Um, an individual who may have become radicalized on his own, uh, seeking to, to lash out and, and carry out a violent act using um, again, only the, the, the tools and capabilities readily available at his immediate disposal. So it fits, in that sense, a model, even though we've still got a lot to learn about what went into the, the thinking of the individual and what the exact motives were. But it does tell us that this is this kind of attack, something that we've been seeing with much greater frequency in Europe, is also something that we have to worry about and, and potentially be on guard against here in the United States. Part of the whole Flint, Michigan situation and, and other places. I mean, there's been Manchester. I mean, um, there have been a number of different places where attacks have happened in, in, in Britain and France and in, in, in other parts of Europe. How do you describe this wave of terror attacks? Uh, inspired, directed, enabled, or is it a mix? And, and why do you feel the way you feel about what's been going on? Well, one of the things we do uh, from, a, um, from an intelligence perspective is try to understand exactly where on the spectrum each of these attacks falls, whether it was something where ISIS or some other group actually directed the individuals, provided them with capability, provided them with real guidance and instruction or, or command and control, or at the other extreme, if it fits much more the, the, the model of, of the inspired attack, where it's an individual acting on his or her own with having been maybe mobilized or motivated by the ideology of a group like ISIS or a group like Al-Qaeda. And so trying to figure out um, where on the spectrum each of these attacks falls is an important part of what we're trying to do. Now, I would argue in some ways that's an important exercise for us in the intelligence community because it gives us clues about how we can prevent attacks like this in the future. I also understand that making that distinction about whether something was inspired or enabled or directed probably doesn't um, feel um, it doesn't make the attack feel any different or, or make it any less tragic uh, uh, if, if there has been loss of life or if there has been injury caused by these attacks. Um, to, the, to the victims of these kinds of attacks, I don't think it matters whether an individual was, was inspired or directed or enabled. But to us, to law enforcement, to intelligence, uh, to, national to the national security commu community, understanding why and how these attacks happen, uh, will help us develop the tools that we need um, to do a better job of preventing them from happening. From your perspective, based on the work you do every day and the work you've done for for decades now, uh, much of it pioneering work in the intelligence community, how should we as regular citizens view what we saw unfolding on the streets of Manchester, uh, you know, the Westminster attack, and how should we view these situations in terms of our role as citizens, uh, you know, in terms of playing some role in stopping it? Well, I think that's one of the things we've seen evolve over time with um, the counterterrorism work that we do here in the United States. I think there was probably a time at which most of our effort in the terrorism world was focused on identifying um, secret clandestine uh, sleeper cells or, or groups of terrorists who might be trying to do something um, covertly or clandestinely and trying to find ways to get intelligence uh, to get inside those cells and, and, and bust up what they were doing before they had a chance to succeed. 
now, as I described it uh, in our, uh, a, little bit, a little earlier in our conversation, the, the far more likely scenario here inside the United States is an individual deciding to act on their own. That means that the most likely, or the best defense against that kind of individual in many cases will be the people who live and work and um, and exist day to day in that person's environment. So the signs that a person might be on the verge of carrying out that kind of act are going to be apparent to someone in their immediate environment far earlier than they're going to be apparent to us here in Washington, D.C. at the National Counterterrorism Center. So a bystander, someone who is a, a friend, a, a coach, a peer, a, um, a teacher, um, a relative of a potential extremist individual, they're more likely, in fact, most likely to be able to be um, alerted before something like this happens. And we're going to be increasingly relying on their contributions to our national security in preventing these kinds of attacks from happening. So see something, say something is still very relevant to you. I, I, I very much so. And that, that, that phrase, while some folks um, sometimes occasionally made fun of it, as far as I'm concerned, it stands the test of time and it, and it really it, it applies all across the homeland security spectrum, whether you're talking about uh, a potential terrorist act or, or indeed any kind of criminal act. So um, talking about people who would go out and do this kind of thing, many of them have been uh, inspired by the Islamic State organization, which three years ago, a little more than three years ago, um, uh, announced its so-called caliphate uh, was, was, was up and open for business in Syria and Iraq. It appears as though that whole thing is crumbling. And one of the real, really big questions that I have is where are they going to go? And what will that mean the day after? What is that going to mean the day after that place or that idea or that supposedly that organizational tangible hub doesn't exist anymore? What is that going to mean for the U.S. and for the, 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 the counterterrorism situation here in the U.S.? Well, part of the challenge is, is that I don't think there will be a single day after moment when we think when we think about our war against ISIS, um, and particularly the war against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, there's no question but that we've made tremendous progress in our effort to shrink the size of the caliphate, to squeeze ISIS leadership into smaller and smaller spaces, to put more pressure on them, and to make it more difficult for ISIS leadership to organize. Um, attacks in, in various locations around the world. That's, that's the good news, and it's undeniably good news. On the, the companion piece to that, though, is, of course, that the ideology that, that ISIS has spawned and has advanced um, has already, is already, in a sense, the, a genie that is out of the bottle. And, and many of the individuals I've spoken about who are inspired by that ideology or motivated, motivated or mobilized to act by that ideology are in a sense already in motion. And so um, the, the defeat of ISIS on the battlefield is an important and critical step in shrinking the, you know, the amount of terror we're going to see around the world, but it won't shut it off all at once. Um, you might think of this as having a lag effect. We're going to be dealing with, a, uh, with the ISIS ideology for a significant period of time, even after ISIS is defeated on the battlefield. So speaking of that defeat on the battlefield, where will those remnants or people go, do you believe? What do you think they're going to try to do? Uh, they're not just going to go back home and say, Mom, I'm sorry, you think? It's an interesting question, and it's one we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, there's no it's true that over the course of the, the, the several years now of the conflict in Iraq and Syria, 
thousands and thousands of, of fighters from around the world have, have flocked to Iraq and Syria to join the conflict. On the one hand, you could assume that when the conflict's over that these individuals will all go back home or try to go back to some place uh, outside of Iraq and Syria. I think we're not so sure that's the case anymore. We believe that uh, the majority of these individuals will likely stay and fight for the caliphate and in many cases fight and die for the caliphate on the battlefield in Iraq and Syria. But even a, a modest number or a, a significant number of these individuals who escape or depart from Iraq and Syria will present a significant threat to us. Because if some of these individuals have you know, highly specific skills or, or well-developed personal networks in, in overseas locations, that will be of, of serious concern to us. That's part of what I wanted to ask why. Um, you said a little bit about it in overseas locations. You think they're looking for a new operational base or bases, or do they even need them? I don't know that I could point to any single location and say that's the place where ISIS leadership will um, will concentrate uh, in, you know, in a new location after being dislodged from Iraq and Syria. What we have, though, is an ISIS global network right now that extends to quite a number of countries across the globe. And you have both places where ISIS has declared a formal branch of the caliphate in, in a number of different countries around the world, but also a number of, of, of countries around the world where there is a significant ISIS presence and there are well-developed ISIS networks or populations of, of people who are sympathetic to ISIS. So all of those places are places where potentially you could see ISIS supported terror taking place. But I don't know that I could point to any place and say that's going to be the new headquarters for the ISIS organization. And that that's not something that that just may not be the model of the way terrorist organizations operate uh, in the future. Um, as you know, uh, for much of the period after 9-11, we looked at the, the tribal areas of Pakistan as being the headquarters area for the al-Qaeda movement. And we've obviously looked at ISIS uh, being headquartered in, in Iraq and Syria. That model may be changing. They may be looking at a, uh, we may be looking at a movement, uh, an ISIS movement that, um, that has global presence, but not necessarily a single headquarters location. How about Americans' role in this? Um, we talked um, a little bit more than a year or so ago maybe almost a year and a half, about American Americans among those foreign fighters. What, what kind of numbers do you see now or have you seen recently? The, the numbers, as I mentioned a, a bit ago, the number of foreign fighters globally is in the tens of thousands. Uh, tens of thousands of individuals from around the world flocked at some point to Iraq and Syria or Syria to try to participate in the fighting there. The number of Americans who've done so is relatively small um, by global standards, probably only a couple of hundred. Um, that is in part because we've had very aggressive and very effective law enforcement um, efforts. Our FBI and, and many of our state and local law enforcement authorities have done a great job of identifying individuals who, who wanted to travel to the conflict zone and have pursued law enforcement investigations against those individuals, and in some cases, you know, prosecuted and, and, and jailed those individuals. I've also, I would also argue that those successful law enforcement uh, investigations have also had a, a, a way of deterring individuals from trying to travel to Iraq and Syria. So that's a good news story. Unfortunately, though, many of those individuals are potentially the sorts of individuals who, who if they can't travel, 
might instead prove uh, um, a, to be a threat in a different way if they uh, decide to carry out violent acts or terrorist acts here at home. Um, and so that's something we're very much on guard for. But I would contrast our foreign fighter problem here in the United States with that of our um, partners overseas, particularly in Europe. Our numbers are far, far smaller, were far, far smaller uh, than most of our European partners. And so the, the risk of those individuals flowing back to the United States uh, is far less um, than what is being experienced by our, our friends in Europe. What about the flow of fighters into the region, the change? I've spoken to a couple of your counterparts from other countries and other officials from the military, and they pointed out that back in the, in the early part of this so-called caliphate's days, there were each month maybe close to 1,000. Now the number is vastly different. Are you seeing something similar to that? Oh, very much so. And I think the numbers of foreign fighters that have traveled or tried to travel to an Iraq and Syria that I mentioned being in the tens of thousands, those are cumulative numbers. And much of that is front-loaded. There was definitely, um, early in the conflict, um, a much uh, more significant, a much higher flow of, of these fighters trying to join the conflict and trying to fight on behalf of the caliphate. As the tide has turned in Iraq and Syria, as the caliphate has uh, suffered setbacks, as ISIS leadership has been um, been dislodged from large parts of Iraq, um, you've seen those numbers shrink pretty dramatically. And the flow uh, certainly peaked a couple of years ago and is now much, much, much more a trickle than a flow. That has all, in addition to having um, something to do with the battlefield dynamics that I just mentioned a minute ago, it has also a lot to do with much more effective law enforcement and intelligence cooperation with our partners, uh, particularly in Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Uh, we, it's much, much harder now for an individual to decide to travel to, the, to uh, Iraq and Syria and to join the fight. Uh, he, if he or she tries to do so, he risks being arrested uh, uh, or, or halted or disrupted at many points along the way. Uh, and so it's a much harder job now if you want to join the fight. Um, and, um, and judging by how ISIS is doing on the battlefield, it's a pretty uncertain proposition if you were to get there and join the fight, too. Speaking of what you just mentioned, tracking and following and trying to keep up with these fighters, there's something called 702, that um, it is a tool uh, that you, I would imagine, will say is very important in being able to do your work, and that tool has to be reauthorized every so often by the Congress. Could you explain to us what 702 is, what it allows you to do, and where that situation stands right now? Well, some of my colleagues in the intelligence community, uh, um, including the, the D Director of National Intelligence, Director Coates, uh, have spent quite a bit of time with the Congress recently explaining just how much value um, Section 702 uh, and the capability it gives us, uh, how much value it gives us, um, it provides in terms of helping us understand potential terrorist connections into the United States. It's hard to say very much about it in, a, in an open public setting, um, but I think we can say with confidence that, that, seven, that the 702 Authority has given us insight into the communications of particular terrorist actors um, in a way that we would not have had if we didn't have this capability. Um, and so um, those of us who um, spend our time trying to prevent terrorists from successfully carrying out attacks, we've come to rely on this authority, and, uh, and we think it's essential for our continued counterterrorism efforts.
Do you think they know about that? Uh, do you think they are aware? Because there have been some pretty catastrophic leaks that have taken place in the last couple of years from the U.S., people like Edward Snowden. Do you think the terrorists are aware of some of the tools you have and have made adjustments to try to avoid being caught in the traps? I don't have to think it. I know it. Um, unfortunately... You have evidence. Uh, we certainly do. We, well, we certainly have evidence that terrorist groups and terrorist and individual terrorists watch and learn from what we say, what we talk about in, um, when we talk about our intelligence capabilities and when we talk about our intelligence programs. And so while I understand the, the need to be transparent and open with the American people in talking about what we do and how we do it, that does come with some cost. Uh, and we've seen um, terrorist groups evolve over time as they've taken, you know, gone to school on um, how we have traditionally collected intelligence, and they now know they now have a very advanced understanding of what our capabilities are. Now that doesn't mean that they that terrorists always hold the upper hand. I wouldn't say that for a minute, and we have a tremendous amount of capability inside the U.S. intelligence community to continue to go after our terrorist enemies. But the, some of that gap has been closed a little bit over time, in my mind, because uh, the terrorists now know more about how we do our business. Um, and so it's a constant um, effort on our part to evolve the way we do business uh, and to try to stay one step ahead of them as they adapt. Do they actually, do you think they actually know the nuts and bolts of what it is that you have, or do they just know that there's something they need to be looking out for? I guess the way I would think about it is that they have a healthy respect for our intelligence capabilities. And so most terrorist organizations and, and many individual terrorists now know that their best chance of evading detection by the United States intelligence community is by constantly changing how they operate, by constantly looking to ad adopt new technologies or find other ways to communicate, um, non-traditional ways to communicate. Um, the days when we could count on uh, terrorists using email messages back and forth between uh, between between leaders of terrorist organizations, um, in which they shared in, in in great detail the, the thinking and planning that they were doing, um, those days are over. Um, and and, it, and most terrorist organizations now have such ready access to new technologies, including technologies with encryption capabilities, um, that it's much easier for them to um, carry out the kinds of communications they carried out before, but much more confident that we aren't able to, to listen to those communications. And so that's something where, where that's, that's a significant disadvantage that we, uh, we now suffer that we didn't suffer um, in previous years. You don't have an answer for that encryption, do you? Well, I'm not sure I would necessarily subscribe to exactly the way you put it, uh, JJ. I, my colleagues across the intelligence community, and particularly my colleagues um, with, a technological, with, with technical skills and technical background, are always working to try and see if there's more we can do to, to, uh, to get access to terrorist communications. So um, I will say the challenge has gotten a lot harder. We have to be um, ever more agile and ever more adaptive in, in the way we do our business. Um, to try to stay ahead of them, but I'm not willing to, to, to step back and say that, uh, that we can't do something. So maybe you do have the answer. 
again, any at any snapshot moment in time, um, we may be uh, at a moment when we are uh, when we hold the upper hand in this area, or we may be you know pedaling as fast as we can to, to catch up. It's a constant effort. Well, you do a wonderful job with that effort. A um, few more things. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, the future, the day after, but we've only talked specifically about ISIS. I want to ask you about al-Qaeda. We've heard not a whole lot from them in the last years, at least as it, it compares to ISIS. Um, but there's been a lot of talk recently about al-Qaeda perhaps making a comeback. Did they ever go away to you? And the second thing I'd like to ask is that bomb-making expertise from Ibrahim al-Assiri and his people. We've been hearing more and more about sophisticated new bombs and technologies. Uh, did, did, did al-Qaeda go away to you? Well, I'm really glad, JJ, that you raised this issue, because with all of the focus uh, and attention on ISIS, and not just in the media, but just in nationally and internationally, with all of the focus on ISIS, it's easy to forget sometimes that al-Qaeda and some of the al-Qaeda affiliate groups um, remain at the very top of our counterterrorism priority list here in the United States. And I would say, and this is something I've said in a couple of public uh, settings recently, not a day has gone by in my entire tenure at NCTC or indeed in, in, in the entire CT community during the period I've worked in the CT, the counterterrorism community, not a day has gone by where al-Qaeda has not been a number one priority for us. Now, that may be a number one priority alongside another number one priority, uh, in this case ISIS, but there's been no um, stepping back from that, uh, from that level of effort against al-Qaeda. Um, Al-Qaeda has been damaged badly in South Asia. Um, there's no question but that we've inflicted a great deal of harm on the core Al-Qaeda leadership you know, that had been resident in Pakistan, uh, in the tribal areas of Pakistan, and that the capabilities of, of Al-Qaeda operating from that part of the world have been um, pretty significantly degraded. On the other hand, there are Al-Qaeda affiliate organizations, principally in Yemen, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, and in Syria, where we where we have serious and significant and ongoing concerns um, about um, the capabilities of those Al Qaeda affiliates to do us harm, you mentioned just one of the individuals, uh, um, Ibrahim Al Asiri, someone we've we've watched and worried about for a long period of time because of his particular interest in aviation uh, and in targeting aviation. Um, None of that has gone away, so that is work that we are, are, are focused that, that we there is focus that we bring to that problem every single day, trying to identify and find and mitigate and disrupt and and disable uh, individuals uh, attached to Al Qaeda who would look to do us harm. Aviation is is one of those areas where they are particularly focused, but it is not the only one. We've heard recently about new bombs, laptops, and things like that. What can you say about what you might have learned? I'm obviously going to be a bit careful here because uh, we're talking about sensitive intelligence. But Secretary Kelly of the Department of Homeland Security has taken the lead uh, in the new administration on pursuing, rolling out a series of, of additional aviation security measures. Um, and that's something we're doing in conjunction with many of our partners overseas. Those steps are being taken in response to a couple of factors. Um, one is just a long-standing history of, of of terrorist groups being interested in and focused on aviation as a potential target. 
So we would be focused on that aviation problem um, almost uh, irregardless of any other developments. But in recent months and in recent years, we've also seen terrorist groups become much more creative and, and skilled in finding ways to potentially hide explosives um, in various devices. Um, and that puts a much greater challenge, or much greater pressure, puts much greater pressure on, on our aviation security professionals around the world, not just in the United States, but in airports around the world. And much as I talked about terrorists being adaptive and creative and, um, and innovative in the area of communications, the same thing applies in terms of their uh, ability to use technology to, to potentially uh, uh, build ever more creative explosive devices. So I'm not going to say any more than that um, um, specifically related to, to laptops, but I, but I would say that we were specific in some of the measures we took because we had some very specific concerns. I want to just get some, some quick feedback on how the current terrorism climate has impacted your mission, how you do what you do. I mean, I know you've had to make some changes, and most of them are technological, but some of them may be other things like funding and staffing and how to think about a certain thing. Give us a quick sense of how that's been impacted by the current terrorism climate. One of the things that I think has made the, um, the terrorism environment that we're dealing with right now more challenging is that it's required us to be more agile with technology than we have been in the past. The kind of information that we are now um, looking at in order to uh, identify and, and potentially disrupt a, a terrorist looking to do us harm um, is different than the kind of information we were looking at a decade ago. And so you need new tools, um, you need better technology, you need um, a new generation of analysts, you need um, you need the institutional memory of analysts who've been doing this for a decade, but you also need you know, young people just out of school who are fresh and um, have a new approach and who have a new set of digital skills and who can operate in the modern, in the modern world uh, in ways that some of us who were born 50 years ago may not be able to operate. So when I think about um, what we need to do to stay ahead of that threat here at NCTC, it, it involves both people and technology. Um, I'm confident that we're going to be able to hire and train and keep and retain um, the very best and brightest young people uh, who want to serve in the national security uh, world and who want to serve their country. But there's also pressure on us uh, in leadership positions to provide them with the technology and the tools that they need to do their jobs. And that's something, uh, a pressure I feel every day. Director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Nick Rasmussen. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Please visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's one word, Tango, Uniform, Sierra, Alpha Podcast. And let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's one word, J, the color green, at WTOP.com. That's whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Here I'm walking through a field, and I'm thinking about a girl just a few years younger than me that was stabbed to death. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America, and each one is called 
a cold case. She said, I think my dad could be responsible. I think he killed them. These are some of those rare cases. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Don't miss a moment. Subscribe now on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or at podcastone.com. And don't forget to watch your DVR, Cold Case Files, the TV show, every Thursday at 10 on A&E.